This podcast is produced by Coaching Life Matters, a nonprofit educational organization that exists to help people understand their core story and find freedom for their future. Connect with us at coachinglifematters.com. In this episode, Terry and Charlotte Smith share their life story together. Along with their individual life stories, they also share their secret of over 50 years of marriage. Here's Terry and Charlotte with the dedication to start off. Charlotte and I dedicate this interview to our four daughters, Sarah, Melissa, Margaret, Elizabeth, and our 11 grandchildren, Aubrey-Ann, Preston, Sterling, Sydney, Wallace, Maya, Peter, Isaac, Avi, Olivia, and Charlotte, Charlie Grace. My name is Terry Sanford Smith. I am 73 years old. Today's date is April the 2nd, 2016, and we are in Nashville, Tennessee. My name is Charlotte Burkett Smith. I'm 73 years old. Today's date is April 2nd, 2016. We are in Nashville, Tennessee, and I am speaking to my husband, Terry Smith, speaking with him. Well, Charlotte, I'm excited about doing this oral history for our great, for our grandchildren and our great grandchildren, and um, I'm just delighted after 50 years that you are my soulmate and best friend on the planet. Particularly since that, along the way, one day you told me that you didn't think you liked me, and I said I don't think I like you back. So uh, why don't you um, kind of. Talk about how you're feeling about doing this for our children, and then we'll go from there. Okay, well, I'm excited about it, and um, I know when our youngest daughter was in the eighth grade, she had to do a family history for American history, and we wished that we knew more about uh, the people in our past. And at that point in time, I started uh, writing poems about uh, especially my grandparents, because I had all four of my grandparents until I was 29 years old, and I lived close to them and knew them well. And so I tried to start uh, writing uh, more so that they would know more about our family. And I'm planning to read some of those poems today. Well, I'm excited that you're going to read some of your poems where they can hear in your voice, uh, because you, in your poetry, really make your history and your background real. And so I'm just thrilled to death that you're going to get to read some of those. And I want to thank you, and so that my grandchildren and great-grandchildren can hear this, that if it weren't for you, I would never have written the book uh, that I finished about three years ago called Delta Blues from Darkness to Light. And um, our histories, our backgrounds are so different. Uh, you grew up in New Mexico in the West. I grew up in the Delta of Mississippi. And uh, so maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, how we met. But uh, you go ahead and share what your thought in response to what I just said. Okay. I might share a little more about how I grew up. Um, My grandfather, uh, my dad's father, A.J. Burkett, homesteaded in New Mexico before it became a state in 1907 he homesteaded in 1907 and we I was born on that farm where uh and lived there first 18 years of my life uh 
Um, we lived on a dairy farm and had a really strong work ethic. <laughs> I say that I learned how to work from that side of the family and learned how to play from my mother's side of the family. Not that they didn't know how to work, too, but we knew how to play games and maybe enjoy life a little more. Uh, but I went to school in Texas at Lubbock Christian College, a two-year college at that time, and then I transferred to Harding University, which was college at that time in Arkansas, and that's where I met Terry. Well, one of the things I love about going to New Mexico and your growing up is you grew up and lived in the same place, same home, same uh, circumstances uh, for the first 18 years, whereas um, my life, as you know, uh, was fragmented. Um, you grew up in a safe, loving, nurturing environment, whereas uh, my parents married as teenagers. As you know, my mother had three children before she was 21, and um, the marriage lasted about 10 years. And then so uh, the first seven years of my life were very safe and loving, but it, uh, at eight years old, uh, things collapsed. My memory, uh, in, I've had to work through a lot of trauma. I remember uh, there were four children now, and the youngest one was two, and um, my mother was drinking. And that day was very traumatic when uh, her buddies drove up in the car, and my dad said, if you get in that car, don't ever come back. And we were crying, and, uh, and she got in that car and left, and so I didn't see her for uh, about 18 years after that. So I lived in desperation from about 7 to 18 until I went off to Ole Miss. So my growing up was very um, uh, chaotic, and so I I sort of lived in desperation. Looked good on the outside, but was dying on the inside, whereas you grew up very um, secure and loved. Is that right? You might describe how you grew up and the community, you, that would be interesting, I think, to our great-grandchildren. Okay. Why don't, before I do that, why don't you tell about your grandmother, Mameda, and her influence in your life? Because that was really important in those years. Well, my father's father died when he was two. And my grandmother, we called Mameda, uh, had a third-grade education, and my dad was her only child. Uh, but she married, uh, she ended up marrying three times, and all three of her husbands died. But she raised not only my dad, but she helped raise the children of another one of the men that she married. And so she was a very strong, she dipped chocolate for a living. She smelled really good when she came home and made us great Easter baskets. Uh, Easter was always such a wonderful thing because she would put all the yellow cellophane over it and the chocolates and the jelly beans and then the bunny rabbits. And so um, so she was very important in our life. My memory of her uh, was her on her knees uh, praying. And uh, although my home was not a religious home, my memory of her teaching me the prayer, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take, bless mama, daddy. So there was a richness about, a depth about her, a love that uh, really stuck with me. She was very special. Well, I thought I might read a, a poem about 
my mother. I think I'll read that. My mother was one of the greatest influences in my life, and she was very uh, happy with Terry when I brought him home. She, he was the favorite of all my boyfriends that I had brought home. Why? What was it about Terry? I don't know. She really liked him, and we lived on a dairy farm, and she even named one of the cows for him. <laughs> named yeah, the cow Terry. I was really, she had a lot of boyfriends, uh, uh, so uh, I felt really chosen when she said I was her favorite. Okay, this is called Mama. She had no perfume to wear, no fancy clothes, no money to spend. What she had couldn't be bought at a store. It was not for sale. She had a gentleness about her, especially toward people whom most folks consider hard to love. She always taught us not to make fun of anyone. She found ways for us to have what we needed, like driving 200 miles round trip for my brother and sister's braces, and sometimes to have what we wanted, like piano lessons for me, bartering for them with eggs. She worked harder herself to spare us kids, not making us milk the cows on school mornings. Our job was to get our brother up and fed and make sure his, he brushed the scrambled eggs from his braces before the bus came. <laughs> she grew a big garden, canning and freezing much of our food like an ant storing up for winter. She once heard me say, everyone has a squaw dress and a dime for store day, but me. Soon she'd made me a beautiful squaw dress, also a dime for the store after that. She would go to town and window shop then come home and sew dresses for us like the ones she saw in the store. When times were hard, she also made us dresses from flower sacks, pretty printed cotton. We never felt poor or without, always loved and cared for, very rich in the things that mattered. That was written 4-30-2001. This is Your Life Matters with Terry Smith. Terry has helped over 10,000 people during the last 40 years. Every year, he provides premarital services to roughly 50 couples and coaching to roughly 25 businesses. Every month, he provides coaching to roughly 90 individuals, 40 of whom are veterans, and every week, he provides crisis intervention services to about three people. One of those whom has received Terry's services is Larry Malone. Larry went through his core story with Terry, and here he gives a personal example of how Coaching Life Matters impacted his life. My name is Larry Malone, and about uh, three and a half years ago, uh, through some extraordinary, I would call miraculous circumstances, I met Terry. I visited him at his office, and uh, as soon as we met each other, we realized that we had so much in common that it was not a chance encounter. Do you remember when he went through your core story with you? Sure, absolutely. What was that like for you? Well, at that point, um, I I know this, it it, it revealed, first of all, the the, the three core beliefs that you have formed as a young person. Um, And uh, that's a very powerful um, item to understand where your security and your survival come from, where your your, uh, self-esteem and love perceived love come from and then where you get your power and control. So I remember, I remember learning those three things about myself and then how you can take that information and, um, and, and make it useful in terms of 
living today in a way that's got more freedom than, uh, than it did before. If someone was thinking about using Terry's coaching services, what would you say to them? What Terry is able to do, the gift that he has to give, is a gift that comes with surprising speed um, to a person. The revelation that's waiting for a person to who who can understand their core story and see it presented before them, all coming from their own lips. In other words, this is not some counselor who tells you, listens to you, and then tells you what he thinks is wrong with you. Terry listens to you tell your story. He maps it as you're doing it. And when he presents it to you, you see things in your own story that you probably have never seen before. And because Terry is so good at pointing those things out. So many people that work with Terry have a comment, something like, uh, you know, I've been to counseling for years, or I've done this and that and the other, and I have a greater understanding right now of who I am and how I am and what I may need to go into the future with than I ever have. And this happens in typically a series of uh, three or four sessions with people as opposed to months and years and all this other. Um, and it becomes a very powerful platform of information that people can use to um, go forward and change their life. That was Larry Malone talking about Terry's work through Coaching Life Matters and how it changed his life. And now back to the story. Terry picks up with his reaction to his mother-in-law's poem that Charlotte just read, and he continues with their life story from there. Well, you know what I remember about your mother when I would take you home from college and the Christmas holidays is just the joy um, that I saw between you, even as a college student would, would sit in her lap and she would rock you and play. So I always loved to go to your home out in the open plains. You could see from horizon to horizon. and uh, But your mother really brought joy. So I always loved to go to your home for Christmas rather than mine. <laughs> that was good. Thank you for sharing that uh, poem. Uh, the little town you were in um, was kind of like a uh, crossroads. And I remember the, our girls saying that Dora had a duck. No, what, Dora had a zoo. Dora had a zoo. But the duck died. Yes. <laughs> Door had a zoo, but the duck died. Um, well, um, probably be interesting to see maybe our great-grandchildren know how we came to meet each other. Uh, I came, I transferred from Ole Miss to uh, Harding University. And um, I had, at 18 and a half, kind of a crisis moment in my life and um, sort of hit the bottom. Um, and that experience of um, not being able to go home, uh, I remember I got drunk one night and I woke up the next day and I said, well, my mother's an alcoholic, my grandfather's an alcoholic. And I figured I was. I was flunking all my classes. Uh, uh, my friends you know, when you go to college, they're all gone. So I didn't have the friends, and home was hell. So I felt pretty desperate at that moment. And uh, I remember 
my grandmother. I remember her on her knees, and that's when I really got into a spiritual quest because um, uh, I felt like if I didn't do something that I would die because I learned to fight as a kid, and I knew if I ever got in a fight, I would probably either kill the person or they would kill me, and I didn't want to die, and I didn't want to kill anybody. So that was a very significant fork in the road after spending a year and a half at Ole Miss. So I made a kind of a a turn at that point to get into a, a spiritual quest. So what about you? Well, as I said a while ago, I had um, transferred to Harding as a junior, and um Terry was one of three guys I had seen on campus that I thought I might like to date. And kind of an interesting story, um, Terry was running for president of the junior class. This It was a guy named Terry Smith was running, and uh, I had campaigned for another guy that was the boyfriend of my suite mate. And this guy named Terry Smith won the election, and I thought, who is this Terry Smith? And then... Um, why don't you take the story from there? Well, you know, it's very interesting. The first day you hit the campus, I happened to be about 100 yards away and watched you being greeted by your friends who were former classmates in Texas who transferred to Harding. And I just thought, well, man, you are crying and hugging each other. And I said, who is that? And then the day that I'll never forget was I was walking with my roommate down the sidewalk, and you walked past me and my roommate, and you were bouncing pretty much, and you just gave this, well, hi. And I actually spun around, and I said, who in the world is that? And so I began looking for you, and you happened to be in one of my classes. And you were in the front of the class because you were not afraid to speak. I was in the back of the class because I didn't want anybody asking me questions. And I watched and waited, looking for a chance to meet you. And I found the day. And on our 50th wedding, I had found this painting that represents the moment that I met you. It was a rainy night. You were walking about 10 feet in front of me. I had an umbrella. I handed my umbrella to the guy walking with me, and I said, I don't need this. And I scooted up beside you. And I said, you wouldn't let a fellow walk in the rain, would you? And of course, I knew that was cool. And you said, of course. And I took you to the grill and bought you an ice cream and walked you back to the dorm. And you told me later you were shocked that I didn't ask you for a date. But I was cool. Do you remember that? Yes, I remember that. Okay. And then at our 50th wedding anniversary party, Terry gave me a, a picture, a painting he had found of two people walking in the rain under a umbrella. And it was really a special uh, it is a special picture. So I unveiled the painting of the moment uh, in our lives. Th- that was a very powerful moment. And so I was in dead pursuit uh, of you. Now, you got another poem you want to read? Um, I thought I might. Um... One thing that the... What I named the book, what we named the book was A Transplanted Soul because we have lived most of our life either in the south or the north, northeast and have ne- never really lived back home since um, we got married when we were 22, right after college. Uh, but I ha- have always returned home. 
as often as I could and have kept up with my relatives. And uh, But I thought I might read this poem that just kind of tells how I experienced uh, living in the in the South all those years. This is kind of how I experienced it. And sometimes I kind of had traumatic traumatic uh, experiences living in the South because in the West it's so different. Uh, but it's called a transplanted soul. She knows from genealogy, no, from genealogy she knows some of her pioneer ancestors started out in Tennessee. Now she's lived there 18 years herself. She's a little rough around the edges, not growing up on southern doublespeak or fine-tuned manners. All that was left at the Mississippi, along with the fine china, silver, and pianos. She was taught to say what she meant and to mean what she said. She didn't learn to read between the lines or listen for innuendos. So if there is something she needs to hear, spit it out. She can take it. She's not fragile. The Southwest has produced many a tough old bird. That was written in 2004. One of the things I've admired about you is um, you were willing to leave your roots and follow my dream and follow my vision uh, to to go where I felt called to go, like to New England when I resigned a job at Memphis State when I was teaching at that university, and I came home to you, and I said, I'm resigning. And you said, you can't do that in the middle of the year. And I said, yes, I can. I'm doing it. And um, that was a very important thing as you look back. And one of the things you've done is you've trusted my decisions at major forks in the road when it was clear to me to act. And you trusted my judgment. And you've said many times, looking back on the big decisions around career, jobs, you've trusted my judgment. And I really appreciate uh, that uh, gift that you've given me. And uh, um I'm, as you know, I'm the visionary. I see dreams and visions, and I paint them, and and I go to them. But you make them happen. You do. You do the detail work. They would not happen, and I would have not made it had you not been willing to do the grunt work, so to speak, to to make it happen. And I, I want you to know I appreciate that. And this is one of the things that we wanted to share is that. Uh, our marriage of 50 years has not just happened, that we've been intentional uh, in wanting it to work and working to make it work. And one thing that we've learned along the way, like we're very different from each other, have if we we together have nearly as, every aspect of personality. We've taken personality tests, and uh, what we've learned is if we work together, we have all the bases covered just about. And we have a funny story one time when our oldest daughter was getting ready to go to college and uh, we were filling out financial aid forms. And we were also preparing for a seminar that we had been asked to speak at. And I was working on the seminar um, trying to figure out what we were going to say. And Terry was working on the financial aid form. And he kept asking me questions about that, and I kept asking him questions about the seminar. So finally we just said, well, let's just trade. So we traded, (laughs) and we were each uh, more in our element working on uh, 
the opposite thing than we started out. So um, for our grandchildren, we would just say, um, I guess they say marriage uh, is made in heaven, but it comes in a kit and has to be put together on earth. And uh, so we have really tried to be very intentional about if we one advice we got at our wedding shower was to, to not go to sleep angry with each other and we tried to work out our problems as best we could each day and uh, Terry's going to speak more about that I think later well, uh, about forgiving but, each other well before we get to forgiving each other let's uh, I think this story kind of focused me uh, one evening uh, I was driving home from being with our oldest grandchild at the time and uh, the two son-in-laws had been hunting and killed the deer and were fixing the venison and we had a great evening and driving home I was listening to a talk show and on the talk show the guy was asking why so many people were getting divorced and he was getting all kinds of answers from people and when I picked up on him he said you know I'm sick of hearing it is there anybody out there having a good time and I just laughed and I said well I'm going to call this guy I've never been able to call and get anybody on the radio on the phone. But I called this guy and got him on the phone, and he said, okay, your name is Terry, four daughters, grandchildren. I said, yeah. He said, you got anything to say? And it kind of crystallized for me. I said, yeah, I think I do. He said, well, what's that? And I said, I don't make my wife responsible for my happiness. I own that one. And it got real silent. And he said, you know, that makes sense. And I hadn't written the book yet, but people were calling and says, who is this guy? You know, has he written the book? We want to talk to him. But it was really, uh, it really crystallized. And I don't do marriage counseling because it doesn't work. Now, I know there are a lot of great marriage counselors out there and they do. But usually a lot of time people come for marriage counseling and they want to fix the other person. And what I've learned in coaching people is that if you take ownership for you and your mate takes ownership, then they can begin a conversation. And I can train people how to have a conversation. But when one expects the other to make them happy, it's a no-win situation. And we've seen that over and over again. So that's, that's the biggie. So intentionality comes with taking ownership. People just don't grow as persons until they take full ownership for their life, particularly relationally. Another thing we talked about was um, the term generativity, which I learned a few years ago means um, the desire for the values of the past generations to be passed on to the present generation. And so that's an important thing to us that we uh, want to do. And I thought that I might read a poem that kind of expresses some of my, one of my values, a b big value, and really affected one of my big decisions, which was um, after teaching school for three years, second grade, and Terry getting uh, one of his graduate degrees, uh, I told him I'd work three years and then I wanted to stay home and, and have babies. And that was really important to me to... Uh, be at home to raise my children and to make a home. And uh, um, so I want to read this poem about that. Okay. The Value of Home. I'm a guest in my niece's home. Early in the morning, I smell breakfast cooking. It is waffles for her son before he goes off to school. 
I am thinking, mothers show their love for their children in a million ways. The meals they make, the lunches they pack, the clothes they wash, all the little tasks that add up to the making of a home. Careful not to think futile thoughts like, here I am, folding this laundry again. No. A larger vision must be kept in view, the value of creating a home, the importance of motherhood. The making of a home is an eternal work, the value of which cannot be measured. 2013. You know, one of the things I love about you, and so we sort of shared the same dream, um, in growing up in such brokenness and divorce with the first, um, my mother, who was an alcoholic, and when I was 12, my dad married uh, a lady who was in reality a rageaholic, and so my teen years were pretty desperate. What I knew if I ever had a home is I knew what I didn't want, and that kicked a fire in me. I knew what I didn't want, but I had a vision of what I did want, and what I wanted was a home where there would be peace. I could actually visualize my wife on one end of the couch and me on the other before I ever met you, and there would be peace. I'd never seen that before. And so what that did for me, Charlotte, was it created the questions. Because I work off of a vision. If I get the vision, then I start asking the questions, how do I get there? And so that's, you know, meeting you and spotting you uh, was an incredible kind of like mystical thing. Like this woman, I want to get to know because you were confident. You could tell you liked yourself. You could also, one of the things I did love about you was you treated people with such respect, whether they were the leader or whether they were the lowest and even the girls' uh, sorority clubs. The, the best clubs wanted you in their club, but you chose the club that had more of what I would call maybe the misfits. And i tell you what sold me on you the most. It was on Sunday afternoon, I would go out to the old folks' homes to visit the old people. And my grandmother, because yeah, I think that probably inspired me to do that. And one day after coming back from the old folks' home, you said to me, let's go out 30 minutes early and shine old happy shoes. And I thought, now that guy can't do anything for her. And it just made me want to, uh, okay, I'm going to get to know you better. So you captured my heart pretty much because you were not all about yourself. And you just, you liked yourself and you liked other people. And I, and I liked it. Did you like me? <laughs> Talking about values, um, another thing that's really important to me is um, taking care of the earth. Oh, as, yes. Uh, God's creation. <laughs> and so I wanted to share a poem about uh, care for the earth. And so I'm going to read that too. This is called Externalities. We, the rich, with fine manners, would never grab or reach across the table, take too large a helping. Yet we grab and reach for more than our share of Earth's one-time endowment, leaving others with less or without. We, the rich, who would not think of trashing our manicured lawns or sparkling houses, Trash the earth with abandon. 
Like horses with blinders, we refuse to see the consequences of our behavior for the earth. What's to be done? Is there hope? Yes. We can take the blinders off. We can think before we cut down trees, build wider roads, bigger houses. We can reuse, recycle, compost, buy locally, ride bikes, walk, grow gardens, conserve fuel and water, tone down greed for more and better, cook from the more with less cookbook, learn the word enough. We can pledge the ancient covenants to care for the earth and to love our neighbors as ourselves. 2005. You know what you've done to me, don't you? What? When I take a walk, I'm picking up trash. <laughs> I'm picking up beer cans. Uh, I want you to read that poem about the Marlboro man. I, I love this. is a real short one, but this is, <laughs> this is one of my favorite. And uh, so you've impacted me when I run in the morning and walk. Um, and Okay, I'm looking for it. Um, you had me working out in the yard this morning. You know, on Saturday morning, you give me the list, and you wanted that mulch spread in the in the flower bed, and I got that done, by the way. Okay, I think I know that one by memory. I'm not finding it, but okay. it's, uh, Hey, you Marlboro smokers and Budweiser drinkers, I picked up your... Uh, let me look for it. Okay, you say something else while I look for it. Okay, well, w- one of the questions... Uh, that probably would be good to our grandchildren to hear is what was one of the hardest times in our married life uh, for you? Uh, and, um, and I'd like for you to comment on that. And, you know, I can, did you find it? I found it, but All then right. I will answer that question too. Okay. Okay. All right. This is called a morning walk. Hey, you mall Boris smokers and Budweiser drinkers. I picked up your litter on my morning walk. How about giving a care for the earth? And while you're at it, your body. And how about giving a thought for those who take a morning walk? (laughs) I love that. Okay, so let me ask you the question. We got 10 minutes here. Let's um, comment on the hardest things, and then we'll close with that. Okay, well, one thing that uh, we might have a little continuation of that, uh, like a hap- more happy ending, like you said you didn't see your mother for 18 years. Uh, when we were expecting our first child, Sarah, uh, you had been driving past her house for uh, a whole school year driving a school bus. You'd found out where she lived, and we knocked on her door, and uh, that began a walk with her, and uh, she was able to rehabilitate and uh, in her final years uh, you know, she was she was doing well, and we had a relationship with her. Well, the difficulty there, and I remember your support of your mother. When we knocked on her door, I'll never forget it. Um, I was 27, and she was 45, and she didn't know who I was. And the feelings that I had of going up to that door and driving past her house every day for nine months, deciding if I knock on that door, I can't just do it out of curiosity. And she thought you were your younger brother, right? She thought I was uh, Robert. And um, and that began a walk together. I'd finished the master's degree that I was working on, and I did another master's degree in counseling of the six years of walking with her. And uh, when we knocked on her door, she had been married five times, and the man she was living with was not her husband. She had cut her throat. She had jumped out of a car going 80 miles an hour. She had 
Anyway, she had attempted to kill herself and thought she was worth nothing, and probably meeting her son was the only way she would have engaged in the possibility that there would be hope for her. My dad uh, carried bitterness toward her almost to the end. Why don't you tell the vision she had just just before she died? Well, um, the, the big challenge that she had was to forgive herself for abandoning four children. And she just thought she was worthless. And and um, and I, my role was to convince her that she was beloved. And there's a probably a famous story in the Bible where Jesus met a woman at a well. And when he met the woman, he asked her for a drink of water. And, and she reacted to him because he was Jewish and she was a Samaritan, so there's a racial issue. And she badmouthed him. And he said, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me and I'd give you a drink of living water. And she looked at him and said, you don't even have a bucket. And he said, the water I give you, if you drink it, uh, you'll never thirst again. And so she said, okay, I'll take that. And he said, well, go get your husband. And she said, I don't have one. And he said, I know, you've got five. And the guy you're sleeping with is not your husband. He didn't treat her with disrespect. He honored her. He treated her with dignity. And uh, it changed her life. My question was, particularly from a spiritual standpoint, is that love still possible? Would it be possible for her to recover, to heal, to forgive herself when my view of God was that he is loving and forgiving? And uh, I wrote my master's thesis on the six years of walking with her. It takes a long time to get from your head to your heart to really forgive, and she did. And the dream she had was she had a vision in the hospital that God was sitting on a throne and there was a big white beard and his eyes were twinkling and he had his arms open like, come and sit, my dear, you're forgiven. And she episodically, experientially felt love and forgiveness from God. It was life-changing for her. Um, So... um, the walk with her was pretty tough. The night she called me one night, and she was drinking. She didn't remember it. And I said, don't ever call me again drinking. And she said that was the first time she ever decided she really wanted to live. She was just 46 at the time. So what was that like for you, having my mother in your life? You can... Did you want to do the beatitude? Oh, yeah. Let's tell them the secret. What do you say? <laughs> this is the secret of 50 years of where you are my soulmate and my best friend. It's like a stri- eight strings on an instrument. This is what we play. Number one, being willing to say I'm wrong. Number two, be willing to say I'm sorry and mean it. Number three, I want what is best for you. Number four, let's just do the right thing. Number five, I forgive you. Number six, I will be true to you. You can trust that I'll be faithful. And number seven, when there's a conflict between us, I'm willing to make the first move. That means if it's 90% your fault and just 10% mine, I'm willing to move. And the last one is probably the best, is I will make allowances for your bad day. Those eight attitudes I heard when I was, we were married about 10 years, and I told the man who spoke them, you need to write a book 
in about two years, he finally wrote the book. It's called Sayings That Saved My Sanity and by Jim Woodruff. And what he did, he took the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and translated them into relationship language, the language of life. My biggest difficulty is with religion because the thing that I believe with all my heart is the one who's been most misrepresented in the world is the person of Christ. And uh, I decided I'd try to figure out how the guy put his pants on and got up in the morning and who he ran around with. And I found a very gentle, kind, uh, compassionate man who said, if you want to know what God looks like, watch me. And I saw God in you years ago. So uh, we've got a few more minutes here. You want to come in? Well, I think for the most important thing in my life is um, my faith and no, belief that uh, there's a better life after this life. And I look forward to uh, to that when all things are made new. Uh, I believe that and I look forward to that. And I think that is the secret for our life together is that uh, we haven't lived it alone. That, uh, you know, as we've grown closer to each other, we've grown closer to God, kind of like a triangle uh, that we both um, sought a relationship with God and Jesus, and he's helped us uh, to be closer to each other and to, to love others. Uh, the two greatest commandments, Jesus said, was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And uh, so those are things that I believe, and those are things I have said to my grandchildren and continue to say to them as the most important things. Well, one of the things I loved about you when I met you was you knew all the stories of the Bible. You knew the stories. Your mother taught you the stories. I didn't know a whole lot about the Bible. Uh, when my grandmother, uh, that night that I got drunk and woke up the next day, is the first time I ever chose to read a book. And I chose to read the book of John. And he said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And I wanted to find out, you know, what the man was made of because I didn't believe that. I thought he was a liar, he was crazy, or he's telling the truth. So I got into that quest 55 years ago, and when I spotted you, I knew you were real and authentic, and I wanted to find out, and I want you to know, and for our grandchildren to know, and our great-grandchildren to know, what an amazing woman you are in this oral thing here that we're doing. And I want to thank you for... uh choosing me to be the person you talked with today and and thank you for uh, being the wonderful husband that you have been to me all these years and treating me kindly and uh, with respect and helping me to fulfill a lot of my dreams. Yes, and um, you've certainly, and I feel like uh, we're just beginning. I feel like I'm about 35. I may be 73, but inside. And the business that we're doing, this uh, nonprofit business that we're doing. is so exciting. We're working with homeless veterans, uh, veterans who are uh, suicidal, and we're making a difference, and we're seeing life-changing things happen, and you're a part of it. Okay, let's just wind this up here, darling. Um, if, if I had to say one thing that I appreciate about you the most is that you are a consistent, stable authentic lover and I love you <laughs> you can tell me you love me too if you want to yeah I love you back <laughs> I love you back <laughs> okay thank you
Thank you. You've been listening to Your Life Matters, a podcast produced by Coaching Life Matters. Stay connected at coachinglifematters.com.